Staying true to America's national destiny, the voice of the awakening. Your host, Bishop E.W. Jackson. Welcome to another edition of Wisdom Awakening. I'm your host, Bishop E.W. Jackson. This is a special edition because it is Memorial Day. And I'm not normally doing a broadcast on Memorial Day, but because of some issues that we had with our Sunday morning program, I thought it was important to get the message out and to make sure that everybody online could hear it. So thank you all for tuning in today to Wisdom Awakening. And you'll be able to see this program, by the way, in our various um, venues, of course, Fire Stick, Roku, on our app, the E.W. Jackson app. Uh, you'll be able to see it on bishopewjackson.tv and on our Facebook page. Uh, they are still airing our stuff on Facebook. I hope you can get it. Something's wrong with Facebook because even though our programming has tremendously increased, uh, our, our audience on Facebook has not. So I know they're, they're up to something on Facebook. But nevertheless, uh, you can watch us on Facebook. Tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell somebody. And let's see whether we can do something to break the log jam because literally we are not adding new followers on Facebook. So they're doing something to us. We just don't know quite what because they don't like my point of view. Nevertheless, this is Wisdom Awakening and it will be aired on our TV program, Vision Awakening, as a special Memorial Day tribute to all of those who have given their lives in behalf of our country. And we honor them. We thank God for them, and we honor and pray for their families who also, in a sense, made the ultimate sacrifice. They gave up a loved one in behalf of our country. So I want to share with you today a message for Memorial Day. I call your attention to Proverbs chapter 22, verse 28. It says, and I'm reading from the New King James Version. It says, do not remove the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. Do not remove the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. And you know, in the modern world, we think of a landmark as a, a physical object of some kind that kind of, as it suggests, marks the land or gives you an orientation as to where you are. And so, for example, we think of Mount Trashmore in our area in Southeast Virginia. Uh, as a landmark, you know, a big structure. I understand it was actually built, <laughs> actually built on a trash dump. But nevertheless, it's a big park. And most people in this area know where Mount Trashmore is. Another one is the Dismal Swamp. The Dismal Swamp is a big wildlife preserve area. Uh, we There are bears there. I mean, it kind of sits right in the middle of, of a city, in the city of Chesapeake. Um, but there are bears and deer and, and snakes and you, know, you name it. And people who uh, walk or run uh, in Dismal Swamp are warned sometimes to beware of bears. We, we don't have grizzly bears, black, uh, but only black bears, which are a little bit more skittish of human beings, but they can also be dangerous. But everybody in this area knows where Dismal Swamp is. Now, those are just two landmarks but they're physical, geographical, topographical objects that, or uh, aspects of the, of the geography that everybody knows about. But the scripture here is not talking about geography. It's not talking about topography. 
The scripture here says, do not remove the ancient landmarks. It's talking about truth and ideals and principles that have been handed down from prior generations. You know, Proverbs 13, 22 says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children and to his children's children. Well, those, those inheritances are not just material, not just money, not just land, but physical, uh, but, but um, uh, spiritual principles, ideals, truths that are supposed to be handed down from one generation to another. That's why the family is so important. And sadly, it's, it has been decimated uh, and is under vicious attack by forces uh, of the left in our country who simply don't like the idea of fatherhood and motherhood, of, of husband and wife. Uh, they want to redefine and realign and redesign the family. But the family as God intended it is supposed to be the repository of God's wisdom, handing that wisdom down from one generation to another. So that's what our text here is teaching. Do not remove the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. Now that phrase, do not remove, means do not turn away from, do not reject, do not disregard. The landmark literally in the Hebrew refers to lines or boundaries that mark out a given area. So do not remove those boundary lines, those guidelines, stay within them which your fathers have said. Now, your fathers refers not simply to biological fathers, but to spiritual and historical and intellectual fathers. And I'll get into that a little bit more in a moment. Which your fathers have set. Now, that word set means which they have brought forth, the truths that they have revealed, that they committed themselves to, and that they prepared for you and handed down to you as a way of living, they paved the way for you by setting these landmarks. So you could tra translate Proverbs 22, 28 this way. Do not turn away from, reject or disregard or remove the fixed and eternal boundaries, the guidelines, the truths, which your spiritual fathers or biological fathers for that matter, have brought forth, revealed, committed themselves to prepared for you and left you as an inheritance. So as we celebrate Memorial Day, we remember those fathers who have gone before us and have paved the way for us and set ancient landmarks for us that we, our generation, ought to be willing to fight, to preserve, to maintain, and to pass on to the next generation. Now, from the very beginning of this nation's existence, when Americans first decided they did not want a human king, it cost them dearly. It cost people their very lives for liberty. Now, tradition holds that the first person to die in the Revolutionary War was a man named Crispus Attucks. Now, Crispus Attucks was killed on March 5th, 1770 in what came to be known as the Boston Massacre. That was dubbed by Samuel Adams and it captured the imagination of people. We still refer to it that way. It's when British soldiers shot five Americans. 
And what had happened was a conflict had developed between a British soldier and a, and a, a merchant, an American merchant. And that conflict became physical and British soldiers rallied to the side of that British soldier and American patriots rallied to the side of that colonist. And it became a confrontation with, the, by the way, the Americans having sticks and stones and that sort of thing, uh, and the British having firearms. And they fired into the crowd and killed five people. Among those five, the first to die was a man named Crispus Attucks. Now, Crispus Attucks was uh, a mulatto. He was often referred to in historical documents. But he was considered to be half African and half Native American. And nobody knows whether he was an escaped slave, whether he was born free to free parents, uh, or what his situation was. But he was free in Boston. And he was a sailor who worked the docks in Boston Harbor and often, of course, went out to sea. Crispus Attucks is buried with John Hancock and Samuel Adams as one of the American patriots, American heroes, who gave his life for liberty. Now, of course, that was five years before the Revolutionary War actually started officially, but that's often considered the first bloodshed of the Revolutionary War. So the next event to break out, of course, the next big, big event that caused a lot of tension, it was, it was building all along, was the Boston Tea Party, where they dumped 42 tons of tea into Boston Harbor uh, in opposition to the British. And uh, that didn't happen until December 16th of 1773. So now that's a good uh, three and a half years later. And in response, the King of England passed and Parliament passed and he signed what they called the Coercive Acts. The colonists called the Intolerable Acts which begun with the blockading of Boston Harbor. George Washington wrote in his journal, uh, after learning of the blockade of Boston Harbor, went today, went to church today, fasted and prayed. And all these people who say that the founding fathers weren't Christians are liars. Most of them were Christians. Many of them were ministers, but they were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And George Washington documents that uh, more than once, because this lie had gone out, the left again promoting more lies, that the founding fathers were all deists. Simply not true. The only, only non-Orthodox people among the founding fathers, uh, famously at least, well-known, were Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin. And I've often said I would take Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin as Christians over some of the Christians I've met. But that's another matter. So look, Britain began to, to erode what freedom the colonists already had. And remember, they're developing kind of independently. They're all the way across the Atlantic Ocean from the British government. And they're living their own lives. And suddenly, as a result of this growing tension, Britain cracks down. And one of the acts that they passed the following month after passing the first coercive act, which was the blockade of Boston Harbor, one of the acts they passed was the Quartering Act which gave soldiers the right to live in homes of the colonists. I mean, so just imagine, somebody knocks on your door, it's a guy standing there or a group of guys standing there with a military uniform, and they say to you, we will now be living in your home and we will take over, step aside. 
wouldn't go over very well, would it? Well, it didn't go over very well then. So all this served to do was increase the tension that existed between the British and what the king considered his colonial subjects. Well, this is the context, this is the atmosphere in which the former House of Burgesses of Virginia, and by the way, you all know that I'm, I'm a Virginian, my family comes from Virginia, my great-grandfather and great-grandmother were slaves and the sharecroppers in uh, Orange County, Virginia. My grandfather was born in Orange County, Virginia, and all his, sub, all his siblings, and they were raised in Virginia. My grandfather didn't leave Virginia until he was an adult, or at least old enough to be able to, to go out on his own. But the House of Burgesses, which met in Williamsburg, uh, which was at that point the capital, uh, was outlawed by uh, uh, Lord Dunmore, the governor of Virginia. He disbanded the House of Burgesses, but they didn't stop meeting. They started to meet as the Virginia Convention. And they fled from Williamsburg to, Saint, to, to, to Richmond, and they met at St. John's Church in Richmond there to deliberate the, the things that were happening. No longer now as a House of Burgesses, but now as a Virginia convention with, with Virginia delegates coming to that convention. And of course, our founding fathers were among those delegates. George Washington was, Thomas Jefferson was, and of course, famously, Patrick Henry was. At that time, he was 28 years old, and they were debating what to do at this point. Remember, this is on March 23rd of 1775. The tension has continued to build. And this is when Patrick Henry, the young lawyer and minister, steps up and gives one of the most famous speeches in American history. And by the way, this speech is another one of those landmarks which our fathers have set. Here's what he said. No man thinks more highly than I do of the patriotism as well as abilities of the very worthy gentlemen who have addressed the house. But different men often see the same subject in different lights. And therefore, I hope it will not be thought disrespectful to those gentlemen if entertaining as I do opinions of a character very opposite to theirs. I shall speak forth my sentiments freely and without reserve. This is no time for ceremony. The question before the House is one of awful moment to this country. For my own part, I consider it as nothing less than a question of freedom or slavery. And in proportion to the magnitude of the subject ought to be the freedom of the debate. It is only in this way that we can hope to arrive at truth and fulfill the great responsibility which we hold to God and our country. Should I keep back my opinions at such a time through fear of giving offense, I should consider myself as guilty of treason toward my country and of an act of disloyalty toward the majesty of heaven, which I revere above all earthly things, all earthly kings. Mr. President, it is natural to man to indulge in the illusions of hope. We are apt to shut our eyes against the painful truth 
and listen to the song of that siren till she transforms us into beasts. Is this the part of wise men engaged in a great and arduous struggle for liberty? Are we disposed to be of the number of those who having eyes see not and having ears hear not the things which so nearly concern their temporal salvation? For my part, whatever anguish of spirit it may cause, I am willing to know the whole truth, to know the worst, and to provide for it. I have but one lamp by which my feet are guided, and that is the lamp of experience. I know of no way of judging of the future but by the past, and judging by the past, I wish to know what there has been in the conduct of the British ministry for the last 10 years to justify those hopes with which gentlemen have been pleased to solace themselves and the house. Is it that insidious smile with which our petition has been lately received? Trust it not, sir. It will prove a snare to your feet. Suffer not yourselves to be betrayed with a kiss. Ask yourselves how this gracious reception of our petition comports with those warlike preparations which cover our waters and darken our land. Are fleets and armies necessary to a work of love and reconciliation? Have we shown ourselves so unwilling to be reconciled that force must be called in to win back our love? Let us not deceive ourselves, sir. These are the implements of war and subjugation, the last arguments to which kings resort. I ask, gentlemen, sir, what means this martial array if its purpose be not to force us to submission? Can gentlemen assign any other possible motive for it? Has Great Britain any enemy in this quarter of the world to call for all this accumulation of navies and armies? No, sir. She has none. They are meant for us. They can be meant for no other. They are sent over to bind and rivet us upon those chains which the British ministry have been so long forging. And what have we to oppose them? Shall we try argument? Sir, we have been trying that for the last 10 years. Have we anything new to offer upon the subject? Nothing. We have held the subject up in every light of which it is capable. But it has been all in vain. Shall we resort to entreaty and humble supplication? What terms shall we find which have not already been exhausted? Let us not, I beseech you, sir, deceive ourselves. Sir, we have done everything that could be done to avert the storm which is now coming on. We have petitioned. We have remonstrated. We have supplicated. We have prostrated ourselves before the throne and have implored its interposition to arrest the tyrannical hands of the ministry and parliament. Our petitions have been slighted. Our remonstrances 
have produced additional violence and insult. Our supplications have been disregarded and we have been spurned with contempt from the foot of the throne. In vain, after these things, may we indulge the fond hope of peace and reconciliation. There is no longer any room for hope. If we wish to be free, if we mean to preserve inviolate those inestimable privileges for which we have been so long contending, if we mean not basely to abandon the noble struggle in which we have been so long engaged and which we have pledged ourselves never to abandon until the glorious object of our contest be obtained, we must fight. I repeat, sir, we must fight. An appeal to arms and to God, to the God of hosts is all that is left us. They tell us, sir, that we are weak, unable to cope with so formidable an adversary. But when shall we be stronger? Will it be the next week or the next year? Will it be when we are totally disarmed and when a British guard shall be stationed in every house? Shall we gather strength by irresolution and inaction? Shall we acquire the means of effectual resistance by lying supinely on our backs and hugging the delusive phantom of hope until our enemies shall have bound us hand and foot? Sir, we are not weak if we make a proper use of those means which the God of nature hath placed in our power. The millions of people armed in the holy cause of liberty and in such a country as that which we possess are invincible by any force which our enemy can send against us. Besides, sir, we shall not fight our battles alone. There is a just God who presides over the destinies of nations and who will raise up friends to fight our battles for us. The battle, sir, is not to the strong alone. It is to the vigilant, the active, the brave. Besides, sir, we have no election. If we were base enough to desire it, it is now too late to retire from the contest. There is no retreat but in submission and slavery. Our chains are forged. Their clanking may be heard on the, the, the plains of Boston. The war is inevitable and let it come. I repeat, sir, let it come. It is in vain, sir, to extenuate the matter. Gentlemen may cry peace, peace, but there is no peace. The war is actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? What is it that gentlemen wish? What would they have? Is life so dear or peace so sweet? as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take. But as for me, 
give me liberty or give me death. That speech is an ancient landmark which one of our spiritual fathers set. It's been echoed for two and a half centuries down through the ages, if you will. Give me liberty or give me death. It's been the cry of every Marine, every sailor, every soldier, every member of the Air Force, the Coast Guard, and, and even now the Space Force. Give me liberty or give me death. Every man throughout the history of this nation who's ever had to look an enemy in the eye and kill or be killed has done so for the cause of liberty. They may not have spoken it aloud. It may not have been consciously on their minds, but we have never been a nation of conquest. We have never been a nation of dictatorship. We have been a nation of freedom. And it's freedom that propels our military to go and fight and the necessary die for that cause. Just a little more than a year after Patrick Henry's speech, founding fathers wrote the Declaration of Independence, another of those landmarks, if you will. They pledged their lives, their fortune, and their sacred honor. And all the brave patriots who have gone after them have in one sense or another pledged the same. And in spite of what many say about this country, the 1619 Project and, and, and uh, uh, the critical race theory, our patriots did not give their lives for slavery or some racial or tribal or ethnic identity or grievance. From the days of Crispus Attucks to this very moment, they gave their lives for all of us and they gave their lives for freedom. That's what Memorial Day represents. Those who fought and died for us. And they did not care the complexion of the skin of the person who fought beside them. They cared that that person had the same courage and commitment and determination to fight on to victory. They did not care the complexion of the skin of the person they fought against. They cared that an enemy of liberty had presented them with a choice of either fight or die, fight or be enslaved and they chose to fight even when it cost their lives. When we fought against the Germans, we were fighting against Europeans, what the left would call white people. When we fought in Vietnam, we were fighting against Asians. Our battles have never been racial in spite of what these lying leftists say. Our battles have been about principle. One of the things that, that I, I, I still get emotional about it when I think about it is the way our Vietnam veterans were treated after coming back from that horrific war. In my view, lost by politicians, not lost by our military. But they were spit on and called uh, 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 mass murderers and, and everything imaginable when the Viet Cong was one of the most vicious, 
bloodthirsty, torturous uh, armies that had ever been assembled. They did horrific things to our people.